Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we're going to be hearing about two fascinating missions to asteroids. Later we'll hear about NASA's DART mission which is launching in November of this year and is targeting a double asteroid system where it will smash into a moonlet that orbits the Didymos asteroid. We'll also hear some asteroid-inspired music, so stay tuned because you won't want to miss a thing. Don't worry, it's not actually that one. But first, here's Professor Jim Bell, who you may know as someone who's been involved in a host of space missions over the years, recently, and notably, the Mars 2020 rover. But he's involved in the mission to Psyche, a fascinating asteroid 200 kilometres wide, made entirely of metal. I'm a professor in the School of Earth and Space Exploration at Arizona State University, the deputy principal investigator for the NASA Psyche Discovery Mission and the uh, imaging team lead for that mission. Planetary scientist, uh, geologist, sports fan. (laughs) We may well come to that actually later in the interview, but first of all, could you just tell me how this Psyche mission came to be? I've been in um, planetary science business for, for 25 or 30 years, uh, and uh, always, always amazed at how these uh, these missions start. They almost literally start with uh, a conversation in a bar on the back of a cocktail napkin. In some cases, and you know, in this case, uh, Lindy Elkins-Tanton, the principal investigator, Psyche, who's who's been studying planetary interiors and small bodies for some time, you know, kind of had had some ideas for. You know, how do we learn more about the Earth's core? How do we learn more about how planets form and and uh, differentiate into core, mantle, and crust? You know, and one of the ways to do that is if we could go visit a core, if we could spend time at a core. And so, you know, you throw these ideas around. Of course, we can't go to the Earth's core. You know, despite the great Jules Verne stories, uh, we can't get down there with our, our equipment or ourselves. It's too hot, too high pressure partially molten iron nickel you know and um and uh same for the core of the moon or mars you know these are inaccessible places we know they exist but we don't know in detail what they're like um but then it it turns out there's this this class of asteroids small small bodies in the solar system many of which are between mars and jupiter in the main asteroid belt that are made out of core kind of materials and uh, and so it occurred to her and, and some other colleagues that that were having this conversation. You know, hey, what if, what if we could, <clears throat> what if we could see some of that stuff up close? What if we, you know, what if we could visit a core, but a a long ago core that's now been, you know, exposed to to view, uh, maybe because it was part of a bigger uh, pl- forming planet that was uh, destroyed catastrophically in a collision, an asteroid or comet collision long ago, billions of years ago, early in the history of the solar system. Um, And it's left it exposed. Maybe that that explains what these pieces of metal are floating around in the main asteroid belt. Uh, And it turns out there, you know, astronomers have been spending decades now cataloging these, uh, these asteroids in our solar system, measuring their, their colors and their sizes and other properties. And there's a whole class of these metal worlds out there. And there's one that's really big. 
And that's the 16th asteroid discovered back in the 19th century called Psyche. There's, that's, that's the one. And so uh, she and a growing team of people that she started putting together, uh, we set our sights on uh, trying to visit this, uh, this really enigmatic asteroid, this uh, lone wolf, potentially survivor of a catastrophic long ago event, and uh, test that hypothesis. Is this a piece of a planetary core that was forming early in the history of the solar system? Can we learn about the Earth's core and the cores of other planets? Can we learn about how uh, rocky terrestrial planets form and differentiate into core, mantle, and crust by going and visiting one of these? Yeah, it's going to be fascinating, isn't it, to, to find out what it is. But it's quite an intriguing spacecraft you're using. Yeah, the, the spacecraft is actually a, a converted Earth-orbiting communication satellite. It's a company that we work with. Uh, it's called Maxar. It used to be called Loral or Space Systems Loral. Now it's called Maxar. And they are one of the main uh, satellite building companies in the world. You've probably heard of Sirius XM Radio. They build the Sirius XM Radio satellites, for example, and many other, mostly communication satellites. And we partnered with them as a way to keep our costs low, partnering with a company that has a lot of experience building satellites, although not a lot of experience going beyond Earth orbit. This is the first time one of their satellites will go beyond Earth orbit. And so not only did we partner with them, but we partnered with NASA, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which has a lot of experience with spacecraft going beyond Earth orbit. And so that relationship is, uh, is at the foundation of our spacecraft. It's a very well-established uh, commercial satellite company with a lot of experience. We basically bought one of their products, their smallest spacecraft, bought it off their production line, and then they and, and JPL worked very closely with us to turn that Earth orbiting satellite into a deep space satellite, much lower temperatures, much dimmer sunlight, uh, and of course, a very different mission than being a communication satellite. Now it's a science satellite. Yes, pretty impressive upcycling. <laughs> but it, it, what does that involve? Is it sort of reinforcing the satellite and about different propulsion systems? Yeah, I mean all of the above. Um, you know, the the power system, solar panels, uh, have to be much larger because the sun is almost ten times dimmer where we're going, uh, and so we need bigger solar panels than if you were in Earth orbit. The uh, propulsion system actually has a lot of similarities uh, to what many satellite companies use for Earth orbiting satellites. They use this. Um, electric propulsion design. It's not chemical rockets, but uh, it's, it's a firing um, heavy atoms like xenon outside, out of nozzle. And it's very, very low thrust, but for a long period of time, you can get the same amount of, of, of oomph of, of, uh, of, of action as a, as a short fired, highly powerful chemical rocket. Uh, and earth orbiting satellites are starting to use that technology. Of course, in our case, we had to modify it because it has to go a long way. It has to operate for a long time and go much, much uh, farther away and operate at lower temperatures and lower uh, solar power levels than in Earth orbit. So that had to be changed. Um, communications had to be modified to deal with the NASA Deep Space Network instead of the usual ways that communication satellites work in, in Earth orbit. 
And of course, it's carrying a science payload. Communication satellites don't carry science payloads. They carry transmitters and receivers and lots of electronics, uh, maybe radio dishes. Um, but uh, And we carry a radio dish because we have to communicate back with the Earth on the spacecraft. But we've got cameras and spectrometers and um, you know, other other instruments, magnetometers, things that uh, devices that they're not used to carrying. Uh, this company is not used to carrying into space. So that's where, again, the JPL experience, the NASA experience uh, comes in. And which rocket are you using? We are going to launch on a Falcon 9 Heavy from SpaceX. Uh, there was an, sort of an internal competition that NASA ran on, uh, on our rocket. And so they were looking at you know, what's the best combination of performance that'll get us to where we need to go and cost because, of course, the taxpayers of the U.S. are paying for all of this. Uh, and uh, so NASA selected SpaceX. And we be heading off to watch the launch? You bet. I would miss it. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be, I've seen a, I've, all but one of the missions I've been involved with, I've seen launch. There's, that one was last year's Perseverance Mars rover launch because nobody was allowed to go. Nobody could travel because of COVID. Uh, they canceled all the events associated with the launch. So we all watched it on on the internet. Um, but otherwise, it's a it's a great time for the team these teams to get together, um, talk about the mission, work, do some team building, team bonding because we have to work closely together. And it's also just a focus a focal point for a project like this. You know, it's the single point where it's uh, it's very stressful. It's all going to work great, but it could also be a bad day. Uh, and so having everybody together and experience that together uh, is really important for, um, for team dynamics and the fact that we do need to work really closely together to get through the, all of the subsequent uh, panic events that are going to happen uh, in the years ahead. So let's assume and hope and know that Psyche is going to have a successful launch. Once you're out there and you're you know, escaping Earth's orbit, Talk me through the process of from Earth to Psyche. Yeah, so you know we spend a lot of time in in what's called cruise, and it's just like cruise control on your car. You know, you're just kind of heading out, um, and point making sure we're pointing in the right direction. Um, most previous missions have fired a big chemical rocket to leave the Earth orbit, leave Earth's gravity, uh, and then they literally coast most of the rest of the way, and they might have to fire that rocket at the other end to stop at Mars or Venus or wherever. Um, in our case, we use those electric propulsion engines, and we're firing them all the time. So we're always kind of carving that orbit into the right shape as we go. Uh, the first thing we do in um, just uh, six or seven months after launch is we fly by Mars. And we use Mars as a as a gravity assist. We get very close to Mars, and it slingshots us out into the main asteroid belt, which is where we need to go. That's between Mars and Jupiter, and we we steal a little bit of energy from Mars and add it to the spacecraft. Uh, so Mars slows down just a tiny, tiny amount, but the spacecraft speeds up quite a bit, and uh, and heads in the right direction. So we use we use the gravity of Mars to give us a little bit of a slingshot to get out to psyche sooner and then um, starting in the fall of 2025 uh, we'll see psyche as a as a point of light like um, like we do now from telescopes 
on the earth is just a, just a dot. Uh, we'll see it as a dot and then that dot will slowly grow, grow larger from the fall into the winter of 2025. And then in late 25 and early 26, we'll start to see it as not a dot, but as disc. And we'll start to see features on its surface and we'll see it spinning. And in uh, January of, of 26, we will uh, kind of just nudge right up to it and Psyche's gravity will capture us into, into a very high orbit. Uh, not landing, it's just an orbital mission. And so over time, we will uh, slowly um, lower that orbit over time using that the engine, that uh, uh, electric propulsion engines uh, and our thrusters will slowly, um, this is gas thrusters, um, will slowly lower that orbit closer and closer to the surface, getting higher and higher resolution, more uh, chemical data, more magnetic field data. And we don't actually know how the mission's gonna end. Uh, we might spend even more time down low, even lower at higher resolution. We just don't know. Uh, but right now the primary mission is to do four main orbits from, from high out all the way down to close in. And that'll allow us to achieve our science objectives. And then, then we'll, you know, as we get closer to the end of that nominal mission, we'll start thinking about, well, what can we do to say, assuming we've achieved all of our science objectives, what can we do to add more, uh, more science, more discoveries? And maybe that means going lower. Maybe that means doing something entirely different. So we'll figure that out when we get there. That's great, isn't it, to have that potential for something extra in the in the mission? But what are you hoping to see when it gets there? You know, it's uh, it's a completely uh, essentially unknown object we know its size and we know you know some of its some of its properties it seems to have a, a surface color and other properties that are a lot like many of the iron meteorites that we have in the world's iron meteorite collections uh, but what is the surface actually like you know we've seen planets made out of gas we've seen planets and moons made out of rock we've seen moons and comets made out of ice, uh, but we've never seen uh, anything made out of metal. And uh, we don't know how much metal is there. It's probably metal and rock mixed together, but we don't know that ratio. And what is, you know, what is the geology? What's the, what's the landscape like in a world that has so much metal on it? Uh, is it familiar? Or are we going to see exotic structures and topography and evidence of past volcanic events? You know, who knows? Uh, so to, to first order, I'm just looking forward to seeing it at all and just seeing, well, that, that's what it looks like. You know, um, there aren't many classes of planets or moons, asteroids or comets left in our solar system that we've not seen at least one example up close. Just think about classes, gas planets, ice planets, rocky asteroids, uh, rocky planets, icy moons. You know, we've, we've seen one or more of all of those up close, but not metal, metal asteroids. We know there's a bunch out there, and this one's the biggest one that we can look at. Uh, but uh, it, it'll be interesting to check that box off because there aren't many such boxes left. You know, in the past 60 years... NASA and other space agencies have just done a fantastic job of surveying our solar systems. 
So there aren't many classes of objects left that we just have no idea what they look like up close. So I'm looking forward to checking that box off. Yeah, it's it's absolutely fascinating. I can't wait to hear what's coming from the mission. I can't wait to see those images. And that's the first thing that's going to be there, isn't it? That's the first thing we're going to see is images coming back from it. That's going to Mm -hmm. fire up the public imagination. I know it's certainly going to fire my imagination up if it isn't already. But can you tell me a bit about the instrumentation on board the spacecraft and what that's looking at? Yeah, so the, the spectrometers will tell us the chemical elements that are there the uh, iron and nickel and aluminum and calcium and hydrogen and you know the the periodic table that you remember from your chemistry classroom in school is not just for the earth it's for the entire solar system it's for the entire galaxy it's for the entire universe and so we know how to look for those kinds of chemical elements with spectrometers like the ones that uh, that psyche is carrying and uh, and so we will look for them, and and we know what they what they mean. And we have developed in that proposal I talked about that we had to compete for. We developed uh, hypotheses. This is what scientists do: you propose a hypothesis. You know, we think psyche is a core of an ancient growing planetesimal. That's a hypothesis. How do you test it? That's what scientists do: they test hypotheses, right? Well, one way to test it, for example, is to measure the nickel abundance. How much nickel is there? Because when we we look at meteorites on the Earth, and you've probably seen these big metal meteorites in museums or science centers, right? They're loaded with nickel. And uh, we expect, and we know the Earth's core is loaded with nickel. We expect a growing planetary core to be enriched in nickel, lots of iron but also nickel. But the details about the nickel, how much nickel is there, first of all, they can help us cross a, cross a threshold. Is it is it likely to really be a piece of a, a remnant of a growing planetary core? And then the details of how much nickel is there then can, can help us test various hypotheses for how that planet was forming before it was probably catastrophically disrupted. Same thing with the magnetic field. You know, the Earth has a magnetic field because we have a partially molten iron nickel core that's spinning, creating that magnetic field. Mars used to have a magnetic field, uh, but its core is probably solidified now. And so that magnetic field is gone. But evidence of that magnetic field, the past magnetic field, is preserved in the rocks, the ancient rocks of Mars. We expect the same kind of thing. If this really was a growing planetesimal <clears throat> that had a molten or partially molten core that was spinning, creating magnetic field, evidence for that will be preserved in what's left of Psyche today. So that's another hypothesis where we can test that hypothesis is with the magnetometer. Just look for evidence of a magnetic field, right? So, so the, these are parts of you know, what we'll, we'll start doing scientifically when we get there. It's wonderful, wonderful stuff. Hey, the, the way you're talking about it is, you know, you're talking about it as if it's just part of the job. <laughs> But you're sending a spacecraft out into space to look at an asteroid that's 200 kilometers wide and made out of metal. It's beyond brilliant, isn't it? It's pretty exciting. It is, yes. And it is it is my day job. And all of us on the team constantly need to remind ourselves and on all these projects that we're incredibly fortunate uh, to be, uh, you know, to be... Uh, to be involved in these kinds of things. We're, we're, 
fortunate that you know, we live in a, in a country and a society that thinks, that believes as a group collectively, it's important to invest some of our tax dollars. And this is all publicly paid for, right? And, uh, and we've decided, as have you know, many uh, nations in the European Space Agency, as have you know, the Japanese, the Russians, the Chinese, others, you know, hey, it's, it's valuable for us as a nation, for us as a species to spend a small fraction of our immense national wealth for countries that are wealthy uh, just to explore and to share that information with the rest of the world. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I d- it, it, I'm just trying to get a sense of how it is, how it feels to be part of this, because obviously most of us won't get the chance to to sense what it's like to be part of one of these teams. I know you said you're a sports fan. Grew up in the Northeast, so I follow the Boston Red Sox, which has been a quite a ride over the course of my lifetime. And then uh, the uh, in basketball, the Phoenix uh, Suns have just gotten into the NBA Finals here, so. That's exciting for our kind of local team. Yeah, and we're talking right in the middle of Wimbledon fortnight. You know, for tennis fans, they'll understand the excitement of that. And it's also coming towards the end of Euro 2020, the football tournament. Your NBA experience and that, how does a mission like this match the excitement of something like that that the rest of us can enjoy? You know, it's a very different kind of excitement. Sports is in, and there's an immediacy and a you know brevity uh, compared to uh, long duration engineering and science projects like uh, like space missions. Um, you know it takes uh, takes years and years and years to conceive of, pitch, get approved, propose and get approved, and then design and then test and then launch and then operate. Uh, space missions. So there are, you know, there are moments that approach the uh, the, uh, the sort of tactical uh, excitement of uh, sporting events, like launch, uh, like a like a planetary landing, or like an arrival at at uh, whatever asteroid or planet or comet you're you're getting to. Uh, but those moments are separated by long spans of. Uh, much more uh, methodical and uh, careful work. Uh, speaking of being careful, do you have to sort of plot your route to the asteroid? Are the things you might, other asteroids and things you might collide with possibly on the way? No. So, you know, there's that famous scene in the, the original Star Wars movie where the Millennium Falcon is kind of going between the asteroids. And all. That is nothing like what the asteroid belt is really like. That is like the farthest thing from the truth. Uh, the individual asteroids, while there are millions, tens of millions of them, uh, larger than a kilometer or so in size, they are widely separated, huge distances between them. And for anything larger than a kilometer or a few kilometers in size, we know where they are. You know, there's something like almost 800,000 asteroids and comets now with very well-known orbits that are being tracked all the time. Um, and, and so we know where they are. And, uh, Sometimes if, uh, if you happen to be going to be passing close to one of them on the way to somewhere else, the missions will take advantage of that and actually intentionally fly close to those, those objects to learn more about more, more things in the solar system and do a flyby. A number of, of missions have done that on the way out to the outer solar system is swinging by uh, main belt asteroids because it happened to be passing close and just a little bit of tweak when you get really close. 
not out of control close, but in, in perfect control close and take pictures and other measurements and just increase the, the census of what we know about our solar system. At the core of the Psyche mission is pure science, wondering what this universe is, how it's put together, how our solar system is put together. But as you may have seen in some of the financial press, there's an interest also in the possible riches that this asteroid might hold. If you'd like to know more about this hunt for riches in space, you can go to physicsworld.com and search for the Asteroid Trillionaires, a feature all about the people betting big on these precious metals contained in asteroids. Another NASA mission, DART, has planetary defence in mind, looking at how we could possibly save the Earth from an asteroid collision. We'll come to that very soon, but before we leave Psyche, the team have been involving students in some wonderful outreach work, which has involved students creating art and poetry. And I wanted to share with you this song, written by Ryan G. Powell, and performed by Amelia Murray, inspired by the Psyche mission. One day so long ago was a planet that began to grow more and more day by day. Between Jupiter and Mars, she would lie out there among the stars, knowing she would make it far. She sang someday I'm going to be. destiny I can't wait wait to see who I'll be following her orbit still she would dance around as she grew filled with joy through and through then one awful tragic day some space debris flew in her way struck her down to just a metal core What was I going to be? What was my destiny? Now I won't ever see what could be She would mope satellite from earth appeared that traveled far to tell her this you're special unique as can be That's an asteroid named Psyche by Ryan G. Powell, performed by Amelia Murray. To find that and the other art and poetry created by the Outreach Programme, go to psyche.asu.edu. But as I say, asteroids are not just sources of wonder, but as the dinosaurs could tell you if they could talk and hadn't been wiped out by one, asteroids can be catastrophic. To tell us about another NASA mission... 
but this time one which may one day help us to divert an asteroid which could otherwise cause untold disasters here on Earth. Here's Dr. Angela Stickle. I am a research scientist at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. I specialize in impact processes around the solar system, so asteroids hitting the moon or other asteroids or other planets, um, and I am the impact modeling lead for the double asteroid redirection test mission, which we call DART. Brilliant. How often do asteroids hit the moon and other things in the solar system? Frequently, actually. So luckily, uh, it's mostly small things flying around right now, hitting other things. Uh, But we know at least um, for um, the moon and the Earth-Moon system, we get hit all the time. Uh, so, you know, we get, we get, um, meteor showers throughout the year. Those are small asteroids and things hitting the earth. Uh, luckily they're small enough that they burn up in the atmosphere. Uh, we know that on the moon we have, so we have the lunar reconnaissance orbiter, um, which is a NASA satellite that's been orbiting the moon for about 12 years now. And we have identified something in the tens of thousands of new small features uh, that have shown up on the surface. And so we get hit pretty frequently by small things. Uh, Luckily, the big stuff is rare. You know, we get hit by boulder-sized things occasionally. I think there's been a few in the past couple of years, things like the Chelyabinsk airburst. It's the bigger ones we have to worry about. So uh, things that um, are in the tens of meter size to hundreds of meters size, you know, there's, I don't actually know the number, but there's millions of them in the solar system. Um, and luckily most of them are not, you know, hazardous, but there are a few that come very close to the earth. Um, and we, if those were to hit us, they could destroy, um, cities, they could destroy whole regions, um, really big things in the kilometer scale type rocks could be devastating for global populations. Um, so those are the things we worry about. And those are the um, reason that planetary defense offices and programs exist in various countries. DART is NASA's first planetary defense dedicated mission. And we are designed to test deflection of an asteroid. So there are various methods that could be used if an asteroid were coming to hit the Earth and we had warning about it. There are things called gravity tractors, where essentially you just put a big old piece of mass, like something, out next to the asteroid and gravity acts to kind of push on it and push it into a new trajectory. Um, And then there are things called kinetic impactors, where you essentially smash something into the asteroid. So you purposefully impact it and that acts, um, that creates a crater, which kicks up a lot of ejecta and that acts kind of like a, a, a rocket engine to push the asteroid and change its trajectory and change where it's heading. And so DART is an example of that. So we are designed um, to test this methodology. We think we understand it pretty well. We think we understand the physics pretty well. Um, we can model it using these, um, these big codes, but we've never actually tested it on a large scale thing. So we want to be ready in case it ever needs to be used um, to really defend the Earth. And that's what DART is designed to do. Uh, It's a relatively small spacecraft, and we're going to be launching this November um, on a SpaceX Falcon 9. 
So we will be launching out of uh, Vandenberg Space Force Space in California. And then it takes um, about a year, a little under a year, for the spacecraft to make it to the Didymo system. And we will be impacting in October of 2022. How does it get there? So we've actually got two propulsion systems on DART. Uh, so part of what we're doing with DART is we're testing, like I said, DART is a, itself a technology demonstration, but we're also testing other technologies um, for NASA. So um, we have a chemical propulsion system, which is DART's main propulsion system. So once we're dropped off in um, off of the Falcon 9, you know, we'll light up our engines and we'll go on our merry way um, using chemical propellants. And we are also carrying what uh, a solar electric propulsion um, engine as well, uh, called the Next C um, propulsion system. And that is a NASA developed electric propulsion system. And we'll be testing that doing, I like to call them cartwheels, but I don't think that's what they're actually called, little spirals along our orbit uh, during our cruise phase to test out that engine's capability. You're just testing that for NASA. That's not sort of necessary for your mission. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So we actually have a few different new technologies that we're testing on DART, and that's one of them. We're also testing, um, although they they have been shown on the International Space Station, uh, we're going to be testing the rollout solar arrays. They're called ROSA. Um, and what these are is these are our solar panels, but they, uh, instead of folding up and kind of attaching to the spacecraft, they roll up on a reel. So think like a, a bolt of fabric or something. That's essentially what they are. And once you get into space, they just unspool and hang out. Um, as their solar panels. And so um, these are a new thing. So it's basically, it's kind of like a solar panel fabric almost. And so we'll be, those are, those are our main solar panels and we'll be testing those, um, well, using those <laughs> um, on the mission. And those are exciting. They're, they're like 10 meters long. They're just these whopping solar panels that are just going to roll out um, once we get up into space. It's not beyond the realms of possibility that these fabric solar panels might find their way onto our homes in the future, but more immediately, they'll be powering the systems on the DART spacecraft. So they're powering everything. So they power um, all of our um, onboard computers um, and our um, and uh, like things like heaters and radiators and our camera. We have a new camera or telescope camera combination, um, called Draco. Um, it's actually derived from, uh, the new horizons camera that will flow out to Pluto. Um, and so it's been modified a little bit for dart and it's going to be used to actually target the asteroid. Uh, so it's our only instrument and it's going to be taking pictures of the system as we come in. Um, and the whole thing is going to be done autonomously. So that's where the computers come in. Uh, we'll be coming in at about six kilometers per second, which is much too fast to have a human in the loop. <laughs> um, although that would be kind of like a crazy video game. Um, and so uh, it's all done um, with a, uh, a, a system called SmartNav. So it's, as it's taking the pictures, it's actually steering the spacecraft to to hit the the little moonlit and is it I, I, will those pictures be sent back to earth as well yes um we'll be sort of streaming them back um as we come in and then as we get close to dimorphos which is the name of the little moon um they'll be coming back about one every second they're sort of shouting back the data um and we think we'll get 
images all the way into about like the last couple of seconds before impact. So we'll get some really nice high resolution images of the asteroid as we come in, um, which I'm really excited to see. Yeah, me too. But I'm going to see them. Presumably they'll be all over the media. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'll be, we'll be showing them off all over the place and releasing them to the public. We, you know, we don't have images of very many asteroids, so it's always exciting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, but the the real reason, right, is to, is to impact it. Uh, so what's going to actually happen in that process? Then? Draco is going to talk, you know, steer us in. He'll be coming in. Um, to the asteroid. And essentially what we're going to do is we're going to, uh, we'll hit it. And when you hit something at what's called hypervelocity, which means that your, your speed is faster than the speed of sound, you create a crater. So it's, it's sort of actually very similar to if you, you know, throw a pebble into a puddle or a lake or something, and you see kind of how it, it goes in, you get sort of a hole that forms, then you get a bunch of water that spooshes up, Right. Um, the same thing happens to the rocks. So you're coming in and you're coming in so fast that when you hit the the rock, um, all of your energy has to go somewhere, right? You were moving and then you're not all of a sudden. We call that litho breaking. And, um, and so what happens is you sort of, you heat the rock and melt a little bit, you'll bust it all up. And um, as a, a shock wave gets sent through the, the, the surface, it sort of scoops out broken up rocks into what's called an ejecta blanket, an ejecta curtain. And so you'll create this crater. We think it's probably going to be about, I don't know, about 15 to 20 meters wide, maybe like five or 10 meters deep. Um, and then all of that debris gets thrown out into space and pushes the asteroid to change its velocity, to change where it's going. Um, DART is also actually carrying a little CubeSat. So the Italian Space Agency has built a CubeSat, and it's called Licha Cube, and it um, has two cameras on it, which are Luke and Leia. Oh, amazing. <laughs> Can't make this stuff up. And uh, it will be, we're going to drop it off, actually, before we impact, and it will be taking pictures. So it, it will see all of this debris coming up from the asteroid and send those pictures back to Earth. So we'll get to see that as well. Oh, um, brilliant. So we're essentially making ourselves like, a human-made asteroid hitting another asteroid. It's the same process that happens when an asteroid hits the moon or hits Mars or something. Measuring an impact like this in space poses its problems, as you can probably imagine. So the target for DART was carefully chosen. We're going to the binary system Didymos. And what that means is that it's an asteroid that has a moon. So there's, there's two. <laughs> um, and uh, we chose that very specifically so that we can measure the, the orbit of the little moonlet. So we, um, if you think about like when you do these things, they change um, the velocity only by a little bit, a couple centimeters per second or something like that. And if you're looking at trying to hit like an asteroid that might be orbiting the sun, it has you know a velocity of tens of kilometers per second. And so seeing a couple centimeters per second change on that is really difficult. But we have the little moonlet around um, Didymos and it behaves kind of like a little solar system, right? You've got the moon orbiting. And so what we're going to do is we will be measuring the um, orbital period of the moon before the impact. And then we're going to hit it. We're going to slow it down. And then we'll measure the orbital period again after the impact using telescopes on Earth. 
And we'll be able to see, because it's, it's moving slower and it's smaller, we'll be able to see that um, velocity difference. Um, so we have a whole group of observers, like astronomers on our team, who have been spending the past couple of years staring at Didymos and watching this and characterizing the system. And then there will be all telescopes on Didymos. Is it visible with backyard telescopes at the moment? Uh, at the moment, no. They're in sort of the tens of meter telescopes um, looking at it now. But um, part of the reason we're launching when we are um, is that Didymos um, will be making a very close pass to Earth in 2022. Um, it's not going to hit the Earth. Dart will not. Dart will not change it enough that it will hit the Earth. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> we have definitely <laughs> checked into that. Um, <laughs> But it will be coming close to Earth, and you will be able to see the system. Probably not like you can see the moon. It won't be big like that. But you could see it in about a one-meter telescope, which could be like a backyard telescope. So okay. um, you'd be able to see, you know, the, the motion of it um, as it comes by. I think it'll be a little speck of light. You know, you can get asteroids coming through, and you can see them as specks of light. Uh, yeah. But it should be pretty cool. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Just knowing what that speck of light is is always special. Right. right. And then knowing that we just purposely hit it with a spacecraft exactly oh amazing this is by the by but i once watched the um the shot the last shuttle mission go over the uk um cool and it just because it was the last one because you had the iss and then the shuttle just go after it oh, it's just so cool yeah mm-hmm. it's, Love it. it's more fun when you have no idea yeah, exactly <laughs> so which telescopes are they using to, to look at it um, I know they're using the one in Chile, the VLT, I think. And then uh, we're using the Magdalena Ridge Observatory in Arizona. There's one or two in Europe also. We're trying to kind of cover all the bases. We want to be able to look at Didymos whenever it's in the sky, wherever it's in the sky. So we have um, um, team members and um, sort of across the world that are going to be observing uh, the, the system around impact um, so that we can always have an eye somewhere on it obviously it's great news that you're not going to be pushing it towards the earth but tell me a bit more about the impact there's essentially two things you can do when you're trying to deflect an object right you can uh essentially chase it down and run into it and speed it up or you can just kind of put yourself where you know where it's going to be and let it run into you and slow it down we're going to slow it down so we'll be changing the moon's position we're not big enough to change the overall system's velocity. That seems like quite a hard thing to measure from Earth to me. That's the beauty of the binary, um, is that they're actually measuring the light curve of the system. So um, the little moonlet Dimorphos is orbiting just under a 12-hour orbital frequency, orbital period. Um, and so if you stare at it, you know, you'll watch um, as Dimorphos goes behind Didymos, it gets brighter. And as Dimorphos crosses in front of Didymos, it gets dimmer. And so using these sort of large telescopes, they can actually detect that brightness change. And so that's the other reason why we're slowing it down is because it's just under a 12-hour period. And if we sped it up, we would worry that we would get it to that 12-hour period, and then you can't distinguish whether or not Dimorphos is in the front or the back. Because <laughs> it's just... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so that's how that's how they're doing it. And it will help because Didymos will be very close. It's like point... I think it's something... It's it's less than an, an Earth-Sun distance. It'll be within an, an, an one AU, an Earth-Sun distance. 
Um, and so it'll be very bright in the sky. And so they can, um, they can track that sort of variation very precisely. Uh, do you know about the names? The asteroid system is Didymos, um, which was named because um, it was a binary system. It means twins. Um, and um, the moonlet actually just got its name in the past year or so, Dimorphos. And um, the, the, the folks who first observed the asteroid picked that uh, because Dimorphos means uh, essentially two forms. So it's, uh, it goes with sort of the twin theme, but it also is that we will be changing the moonlet with our impact. And so it has one form, and then after DART, it will have a second form, which is, I think, kind of very poetic. Yeah, that's lovely. That's really cool. That's really cool. Although it's, it's not the best named asteroid, is it? Is well, there is one named Stickle, which is after me. So I, I'm a little partial to that asteroid, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's very cool. Tell me about how that came about. Just brand new. Yeah, it was quite a surprise, actually. So there's a conference that happens every few years of asteroid scientists. And um, usually at that conference, um, they announce new asteroid names. Um, naming things in the solar system has all sorts of rules, but asteroids can be named for people who have, I think, the sort of the criteria is have made a significant contribution to asteroid science, is my understanding of the criteria. And you have to be nominated by somebody. And then the, um, the IAU, the International Astronomical Union, the folks in charge of naming everything, say yes or no. Uh, and then, and so they usually they get announced at this conference, which was supposed to happen last July, which of course did not happen last July because we were all hiding in our houses. Um, and then it was going to happen this July and it's not happening this July either. Um, and so they, they just decided instead of put them out there, which was really exciting. A bunch of, um, a bunch of my friends who are also fairly early career folks got asteroids named for them this year too. And it's awesome. It's really awesome. It's so cool. Can you tell me about that asteroid? It is about 60 meters big. Something some between 60 and 100 meters big. So we think it's kind of like demorphosized. Um, it has a, it's pretty dark. I don't know that much about it. They don't know that much about it. Um, and it has a sort of a high inclination. So it's sort of kicked up a little bit out of the ecliptic plane. Um, and I think I, I looked it up. It's something like a 16 hour period or something like that. So someday we should try to visit it. I think that would be cool. <laughs> what would be your preferred method of diverting that particular asteroid? Oh, I would for sure want to run something into it. <laughs> I just make a big old crater. Yeah. Um, I, I study impacts. Like I kind of got into that because I like to break things. <laughs> and so I think that would be fun. I mean, We'd have to be careful not to break it up because that would be really sad. But um, yeah, just smack something into it and push it, push it towards the Earth. I guess you could like land and put an engine on it or something, you know, uh, expanse style. But I want to run things into everything in the solar system just to see what happens. Okay. How did you get started in this? Kind of by chance. So I actually, when I went to college, I studied uh, geology and aerospace engineering. Um, cause I've always liked space and then, you know, when you're a little kid, you want to be an astronaut and what do you do? You study engineering. Right. Uh, 
And then when I was looking at what I would do after college, I sort of just applied to some different graduate schools and um, got an email from my, who turned out to my PhD advisor, who was basically like, hey, you have relevant skills. NASA has a really big gun. Do you want to come shoot things with it? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, kind (laughs) of. It was just like, you know, I thought it's like, it kind of combines my love of um, breaking things, engineering and geology. So I get to kind of do all of that on other planets or for other planets and, you know, test things with things like the, the um, impact ranges that were designed for Apollo to like learn about the moon or um, we have actually an impact range here at APL that we built um, so that we can test things for missions like DART or other stuff. And um, yeah, it just combined a lot of loves. You know, planetary defense is a really cool thing to work on. It's like an international problem. So which is so fun because we have colleagues all over the world. Like we work very closely with ESA and JAXA and and other space agencies. And um, so I get to meet cool people and do cool things. Plus, I get to call myself a planetary defender, which is kind of like the best job title. So, yeah, I think DART has been one of my favorite things. I got to start working on it right when I got to APL and have watched it grow from a crazy idea to like a real mission, um, which is super exciting. So we're really excited to see what happens. And I'm really excited for the actual experiment to prove all of my models wrong so that we can make them better. Brilliant. Are you a science fiction fan? I am, yes. So you mentioned The Expanse. Is there other asteroid science fiction that you like? Not speaking for Dart. I actually really love the cheesy disaster, like Armageddon-style films. I think they're fun. Not super scientifically correct, but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of those sorts of things. I think mostly sci-fi, I grew up watching Star Trek, so all of the new Star Trek films, you know, things like that. Both the Psyche and the Dart mission do sound like something out of science fiction, but they are real missions coming in the next few years. One of the key outputs of Dart will help us to understand just how far we can move an asteroid. Could we crucially move it far enough to stop a potential collision course with Earth? Thank you so much to Angela Stickle and Jim Bell for talking to me for this episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. We'll be back next month when we'll be talking about some potential geek holiday destinations. But for now, I'm off to dig out my old Atari. Physics World.